Welcome to EE Times On Air. I'm David Finch. In today's episode, the second of our inaugural season, we take a closer look at today's U.S. energy grid. Reliability in the United States power system is priorities at least number one, two, and three. We learn from a top expert in energy distribution what goes into building a smart grid. So demand forecasting happens at different scales of the system, and the biggest one is in the unit commitment economic dispatch process. So basically, you try to schedule your generation for what you think is going to happen tomorrow. And we learn more about an exciting new program at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. The idea here is to sort of be able to do that automatic optimization and control uh, based on complex systems modeling. All that to come. And look, if you've never had the opportunity to listen to a chief scientist of a national laboratory speak his mind, you owe it to yourself. You'll love this. The United States Electrical Grid was established in 1890, a mere two and a half decades after the Civil War ended. Since then, it has grown to consist of more than 300,000 miles of transmission and distribution lines spread all throughout the country. And that is about as much as I know about electrical power and energy distribution at the national scale. Electricity is something that I've always taken for granted, quite happily in fact. Growing up on a farm, I knew where our nation's meat and cornstarch came from. Whenever I wash my hands, I have a pretty good idea where that water is coming from. And the same goes for the music that comes out of my speakers. I know exactly how that's happening. But power, to me, has always been the stuff that just comes out of the wall. I really didn't want to know much more than that. That is, until a few weeks ago. I was reading a story about the electrical grid that supplies power to the city of Chattanooga. A few years ago, Tennessee was bombarded with tornadoes and violent storms which ripped through Chattanooga, leaving tens of thousands of citizens without power, but only for like a minute or two. Those 20 years spent on a farm in the Midwest, I'd seen my share of big storms and had grown accustomed to losing power for hours or even days in the aftermath. That Chattanooga was able to get back online within a few minutes of these tornadoes was astounding to me. If you're listening to this, you are a consumer of the electrical grid. You might even be a supplier to the grid if you've invested in solar. Point is, we all interact with the electrical grid every day, and few of us really understand what's happening behind the outlet. So I've invited Dr. Brian Mathias Hodge, who is chief scientist of the Power System Design and Studies Group at National Renewable Energy Laboratory. He is an associate professor at CU Boulder in electrical, computer, and energy engineering. And he's also a fellow of the Renewable and Sustainable Energy Institute. Brian Mathias, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So if you could please just give me um, maybe a two-minute background, how you got into this field, and then how you came to dominate it with three very specific <laughs> high-level titles. <laughs> um, yeah, so I uh, actually studied chemical engineering okay. in undergrad, and I got into the sort of optimization and modeling side of chemical engineering and completed my bachelor's, moved to Finland, did a master's there, and uh, came back to the U.S. and did my Ph.D. in chemical engineering at Purdue University. And uh, while I was there, I was lucky enough for my advisors to give me a lot of freedom. They said, do something in energy, go. And I was always fascinated. <laughs> something in energy. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And I, I was always fascinated by the uh, sort of electrical side of it, just because we have this enormous system where supply and demand are instantaneously having to be balanced. And that's wow. a very tough thing. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I, I started doing that and I got my PhD there. Um, one of the professors there told me that I was on the lunatic fringe of chemical engineering. I took it as a, I took it as a compliment. Um, Always take lunatic but... <laughs> fringe as a compliment, whatever you're doing in life. And then I was lucky enough to get a job as a postdoc at the National Renewable Energy Lab. And I've been working there for about the past eight years now. And uh, just recently started a joint appointment with uh, CU Boulder. Uh, good for you, man. So, so that trajectory is, um, that's so non-repeatable. Like that's <laughs> just, you kept finding organically your way into the right area that was interesting to you, but you also had the right people there who were encouraging you to just sky's the limit. I, I've been really lucky to have a lot of great mentors uh, throughout that have sort of helped push me in the right direction. That's great. So how did your background and your your innate interest, right, mm-hmm. in um, modeling, how did that inform um, your interest and your further study in the grid? A lot of the work that we're doing at the moment really looks at um, combined energy systems. So right now, because we're getting so much more natural gas on the system, for example, the natural gas system and the power system are coupled in a way that they never have been before. And so, you know, having that chemical engineering background is very helpful for understanding that sort of system as well. Um, you know, knowing things like uh, fluid dynamics and the Navier-Stokes equations um, helps be able to understand the interactions between those sort of systems. I'm a musician, and there's a saying uh, when you perform in a chamber ensemble, um, listen across the ensemble. It's one thing to just watch the director and take take the cue um, and just play regardless of what everybody else is doing. But um, what I've always liked about that sensibility is that you're engaging the rest of the group and understanding that you have a role in that and there's a give and a take. And so when we're talking about smart grid, it seems to me like um, the most exciting aspect of all this is the give and take that maybe one region can supply, consume uh, to the others. Am I thinking about this the right way? I I think that's a fantastic analogy. And we're seeing a lot of that at the transmission grid at the moment. So, um, you know, for example, Wyoming has great wind resources, but not a lot of load, right? Because not a lot of people live there. Um, California has lots of load, um, but it's pretty built up. And so it's harder to install big plants, right? Mm. And so what we're seeing in the Western United States, especially, is um, one manifestation of this is the energy imbalance market that took came into play a couple years ago. So essentially, in the transmission grid, you have things called balancing areas. And so they're basically trying to match supply and demand within their own little area at all times. So they're the ones who control that slice of the country, let's say. And they've always coordinated with each other. Now, sometimes that coordination used to be just literally picking up the phone and saying, hey, can I have 100 megawatts of power now? Because, you know, a plant went out or whatever. But what the energy imbalance market is doing is it's linking together a lot of these balancing areas that really acted a lot more separately before and increasing the coordination between them. And and that goes down to like the five-minute timescale instead of the hourly time scale that they used to do things at. When I think at the scale of, uh, gee, there's a town uh, in, in Montana that is going to deploy energy to the West Coast. How does that even work? It's 
So it's certainly possible. Um, and when you transmit over those sort of long distances, you want higher voltages to yeah. minimize the losses. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's definitely been a lot of plans about uh, building lots of transmission from sort of the Rocky Mountain West to the West Coast, for example. And the TransWest Express is just one example of that. That's a project that's being talked about right now. Um, the biggest problem with that is building transmission in the United States is very, very difficult from a that? political perspective. Okay. Because you cross so many jurisdictions, multiple states, multiple counties, multiple cities. And so you can get caught up in any one of those if they don't want the power going through. Now, the problem, especially with high voltage DC, is think of it like a highway. There's only certain exits. And so all the people who are between the exits have these big lines coming through their area now, but they're not really getting a lot of the benefit from that. And so, you know, one of the biggest things in the U.S. that we, um, in my opinion, need in order to sort of ease or do this transition in the most reliable and economic way mm -hmm. is finding political solutions to being able to build more transmission. And doesn't it seem like something that benefits every municipality, every taxpayer, every state, every region? Um, wouldn't everybody just want to be on board with this, or is that a naive assumption? You uh, you always get opposition to everything, right? And, <laughs> okay. and, and sometimes for good reasons. Okay. Um, you know, I, I probably wouldn't want a 765 kV line running through my backyard either, right? <laughs> Come on, man. I mean... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but when you fly over the country, there's so much open space. And that's, that's where I started. Um, I was flying recently, mm -hmm. and the flight, the evening flight from Austin to Denver International this time of year is a really beautiful flight. You know, it leaves at like eight o'clock at night or something local in Austin. But anyway, you take off and you still have some daylight. Um, immediately after takeoff, you can see the patchwork of fields and you know, that what makes up, what constitutes the landscape of Texas, right? Um, and by the time you finish making all the turns and climbing and your plane levels off, sun has already started to set. And so that blue sky starts to get gray and then slate and then everything is consumed in darkness. And it's cool how imperceptibly that happens. But, you know, what I love to do on these flights is as the sun goes down over regions, I like to see when the lights start to come up. The reality is that if the lights don't come up, that might be failing to deliver electrical energy to a children's hospital. And the benefits of going from hours of downtime when there's a hiccup or a disruption to a couple of minutes can be life or death. And so um, what are some of, from your perspective, what are some of the important reasons why we would be modernizing this ages old grid? Yeah, the um, reliability in the United States power system is priorities at least number one, two, and three. So keeping the lights on is the most important thing. And we do a lot of policies, a lot of operational aspects in order to make sure that that happens. And so reliability is always a huge, huge concern. And advanced metering, advanced communication, advanced control can help make the, quite frankly, really good reliability numbers we already have even better. But we can also do these things um, more economically while keeping the same amount of reliability by having those advanced communications, advanced controls um, that will enable us to sort of shrink the reserve margins that we have. Mm -hmm. So keep the same reliability, improve the reliability, perhaps 
but do it in a more cost-effective manner as well. And the, the third thing that I think we can do with this as well is we can also make it more sustainable. Um, so that we can, you know, include more wind and solar generation. And so I think all these technologies, they, they really go for those three big things, more cost-effective, more reliable, and more sustainable. You know, at the end of the day, it's the consumers who end up footing the bill. And right. so that's sort of the societal benefit. Absolutely. Um, could you keep stepping me through what it takes to, um, uh, to be a diverse grid to um, for Montana to supply mm-hmm. power to say I don't know Washington State. Yeah, so um, you need not only flexible generation like we've talked about, so that can turn up and turn down, um, and you can supply power at different levels fairly quickly. Um, but you need increased coordination between the entities that control the balancing for different regions. Um, you also need just the physical connections, right? If you're, if you're trying to send power that far away, you mm-hmm. need the transmission lines that can do so. And that's the part that blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, what are we talking about when we're trying to go from state to state? Yeah, so the U.S. grid is split up into essentially three regions. Okay. So each of those are synchronous with one another. Mm. So there's the eastern interconnection, which goes even into Canada, um, but then... Uh, most the entire eastern seaboard over to about Texas and then up to roughly Minnesota, Montana. Okay. Um, so that's the eastern interconnection. That's one synchronous grid. You have the western interconnection, which includes part of Canada, goes all the way, includes uh, part of Baja, California mm-hmm. as well, and the rest of the west. And then you have ERCOT, which is Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why did they get their own grid? <laughs> Texas. It's Texas. Oh, it's Texas. <laughs> Texas and, does their own thing. So. Yeah, they, the hubris, unbelievable. <laughs> I should have known. Every time I'm in Dallas, I should have known they had their own grid. Every everything's a little different. In That's Texas, incredible. Even the power wow. system. So, so they get their own. They, they have their own essentially interconnection. Yeah, and so between each of those, each of those are uh, alternating current AC synchronous grids. So they all have essentially the same frequency mm-hmm. at any point in time, and they're connected by DC links direct current links mm-hmm. uh, that help push this sort of, um, that interact with each other, but they don't maintain the same frequency between them. So they're independent in that manner because of the power electronic uh, backing on the DC side. What What is that threshold where they say, all right, this transmission line, we're going to go to DC? Uh, yeah, that, that changes from place to place. Okay. You, you know, you see, in, especially in China right now, you see these enormous HVDCs lines going in, um, just voltage levels unheard of in the United States. Um, and that's taking power mostly from their sort of north and west to the eastern seacoast where uh, most of the population is. Okay. In the U.S., we've seen a lot less development at the very high uh, DC voltage levels. But you also see it, for example, with offshore wind farms in um, Europe. Part of part of smart intelligent distribution is knowing where your stores are. So what are we storing it as? Where are we storing it? And um, who gets to decide when we tap that storage? Sure. Um, those are all great questions, and there's lots of different answers to them. Um, cool. And so, so you need storage on the grid for a few different reasons. Um, so basically, you can think about it like high power, low energy, or high energy, low power, right? Those two are sort of independent. Yep. And so high power, low energy things are things like flywheels, for example. Um, 
these can help you ride through just sort of voltage events, sort of smooth power quality, for example. But they're not, you can't run your house on them for hours at a time. Right. Right. And so you need that sort of power quality time scale storage. A lot of those are um, capacitors or flywheels, things of that nature, depending on sort of where in the system you are. A flywheel? Yeah. Like mechanically, physically? Like mechanical, physical flywheel oh, really? in a vacuum so it doesn't lose the energy. Really? So there was a company okay. that is now at a business uh, called Beacon Energy uh, that was really, really pushed to have flywheels be um, accepted into sort of the mainstream. And yeah. they were actually, they pushed mostly on the policy side to be, have them to be able to play in the ancillary services markets markets and get paid for that contribution. Okay. And then sort of where you're seeing a lot of the development right now is sort of in that middle scale, power, medium energy. And a lot of that is lithium ion or mm. other battery technologies. And that can do different things like uh, if it's installed at a house, you can be like in Hawaii where um, the new regulations are called self-supply. So you're not allowed to export PV back to the grid. And so instead of uh, curtailing that PV generation, you can use it to charge your battery and then run it back at night when you're not producing PV power, for example. Lithium ion installations, are those uh, for the most part relegated to residential or uh, would you see those in uh, commercial settings? You also see them in commercial. A lot of installations are happening at the residential level. Um, so there's some uh, utilities who are incentivizing their customers to do this. Uh, there's also places where the customers are just doing it on their own accord to increase their reliability or you know save some of that solar power that they're generating. But especially in California, because California has a storage mandate, and so each of the large investor-owned utilities there has been installing uh, quite a bit of storage as well. And you can use that in different fashions. So it can be used by the utility itself to sort of shift power around from times when it's uh, sort of really cheap to times where it's really expensive. Or what you also see sometimes is it being installed co-located with renewable plants. And you can do that either just sort of for the economics of it, or you can do that for other reasons. Like a great example of that is in Hawaii, they have uh, ramp rate limitations on uh, a lot of their renewable generation. And so you can utilize a relatively small amount of storage to sort of trim the edges off your ramping, slow that sort of... Um, curve, you know, that ramp down to the acceptable level. Ramping is something that is all over the map. Um, you've got coal, yeah. which would take forever, I would imagine, to ramp up. And you can't just say like, well, we don't need it right now. Right. And so the very long tail down. Um, how does it look across the landscape of renewables? Um, so one of the, well, so for tr from traditional generators, um, generally speaking, Coal is very slow to ramp. Nuclear in the U.S., we don't really ramp more or less at all. Um, in France, they ramp it quite a bit, but we just, we say, keep it on and keep it steady. Um, different types of natural gas plants can ramp more than others. So turbine-type technologies can ramp very quickly. Um, diesel gensets can ramp very quickly. With renewables, they can ramp very, very quickly because they're power electronic-based. The question is how you operate them to allow them to do that. 
Because to get the best economics, you want them running at their maximum potential all the time, which doesn't leave you any headroom to ramp up. Now you can ramp them down very quickly, but you can also sort of proactively curtail a little bit. So you can produce, let's just say 10% less than what you could maximally produce right now Mm. to give yourself that headroom. And a great example of that is right here in Colorado. So Excel Energy is the only um, utility that I know of in the US. They actually utilize their wind plants to provide regulation reserves. That means it's on a four second signal, ramping up and down to maintain the balance for the rest of the system. Can you explain that a little further? Yeah, so um, so one of the reserves that you hold in the power system mm-hmm. is regulation reserves. And that's because uh, supply, or sorry, rather demand is variable, even at small time scales, right? You know, mm-hmm. I turn off, turn on this light switch, I don't have to call you Excel and tell them I'm going to do that, right? <laughs> I mean, I do what I want and, you know, the system just sort of varies a little bit. Right. Um, And so to account for those and, you know, balance those little ramps that happen on the seconds to minutes timescale, we hold regulation reserve. And how that's done is plants are put on automatic generation control. So you have a signal going to the plant that tells them roughly every four seconds, okay, turn up a little, turn down a little, here's where you should be, here's your set point. And... Excel does that actually with its wind plants. So take a big wind farm like we have up in northern Colorado that's about 300 megawatts or so. Okay. Let's say it's, you know, great wind conditions, it's producing all 300 megawatts. Excel might choose to turn that down a little bit and say, okay, we're only going to produce 275 megawatts right now, mm-hmm. and that's going to be our set point. But then we're going to send it this signal that lets it go up to 280, down to 260, and so on. And so it can sort of okay. control the rest of the load fluctuations from that wind plant. And what is that time window? For AGC? Mm-hmm. That's sort of seconds to minutes. So that's the very, you know, sort of the really small time scales. Super responsive. Yeah. And what are the benefits to being so responsive? Yeah. The benefits are um, even some of the larger plants, uh, thermal plants, can't uh ramp that quickly or can't follow an AGC signal well. And because of the power electronic backing on wind plants and solar plants, they can actually do that very, very well. And so the benefit there is you're providing this reserve that the system needs Mm -hmm. and you're doing it at super cheap cost and you're doing it very well. There's, because if you, if you miss that balance, your frequency starts to deviate. And if your frequency deviates enough, you start to have, um, you know, generators trip or load trip. And so you can really hold that frequency tight by utilizing power electronic backed uh, generators, such as wind and solar. Now, this is a pretty advanced concept. Like I said, Excel's the only one in the US that I know that does this, but it's, uh, they've been doing it for years now. What would be the role of things like demand forecasting, predictive analytics? Um, how is that implemented right now? Does NREL, you know, participate in any of that, uh, you know, in any of that development? Sure. Um, so demand forecasting uh, happens at different scales of the system, and uh, the biggest one is in the unit commitment economic dispatch process. So basically, you try to schedule your generation for what you think is going to happen tomorrow in terms of loads. And you do that because large plants, like coal plants or nuclear plants, take a long time to start up and shut down. So you have to tell them today if you want them to generate tomorrow. And so uh, you do a lot of demand forecasting there. The biggest thing that's changing in demand forecasting is now you have all this behind-the-meter generation. 
So the distributed PV on my rooftop, for example. Now, Excel doesn't know what's going on with that. It doesn't know if that's producing, if that's not going to produce. And so incorporating the behind the meter generation into the demand forecast, because the utility only sees that essentially as negative load. And so that's a huge area of research right now. In fact, uh, we're getting started, NREL is involved in two different projects uh, funded by the Department of Energy on solar forecasting that have a large behind the meter forecasting component to them. And it would have to be modeling, right? It, it couldn't use real-time feedback or direct feedback because if I'm behind the meter, if I want to communicate anything back into the grid, I have to get through a couple transformers and there's no way my data is going to pass. You know, um, is, that, is that the case? They have to build models that they think are right? Exactly. So, so they use the current demand forecasting models are largely uh, machine learning, neural nets, things like that. So they require lots of training data. And now the training data isn't so useful because the system's changing. And so you have to build on top of that. And you want to be able to take a couple measurements and then be able to predict what's happening with the rest of it through modeling. Because you can't afford to put a sensor at my house and your house and everybody else's <laughs> house that has solar on it, right? Right, right, right. And so, so it's utilizing small numbers of uh, measurements in order to make larger predictions about what's happening. Okay, and are you comfortable with the accuracy that you're seeing in these? So the the accuracy, the hardest part with behind the meter forecasting yeah. is just getting the data. So getting good, clean data um, on which you can train algorithms, essentially. What is the challenge there? It's, it's the fact that the utilities don't have that centralized repository, right? Because they're not metering what's happening well, they're metering what's happening on my house, but at longer timescales, right? right? Not on very small timescales. Are there are there municipalities, um, regions of the United States that have killer smart grid implementations? There's different regions that do different things better than others. Okay. So, for example, Excel Energy does absolutely fantastic with wind power, like we were talking about earlier. Sure. Um, where you see a lot more of the developments on the storage and distributed side are in Hawaii and in California. And that's just because they're having to deal with these things faster because they have higher penetration rates of PV and distributed PV. And so the problems that other folks are just thinking about for five years from now, yeah. in Hawaii and California, they're dealing with it now. Because they have the need. Exactly. It's at their doorstep. Is there anything that really excites you about the impact that the work you're doing is having on our energy system and on people. Yeah, so we, we have a really cool project right now with a number of partners right here in Denver. So anybody who's been to Denver lately has seen that there's a lot of building out by the airport, right? Uh, <laughs> sure. There's new development going on all the time. And, and we're working on a project with uh, Excel Energy and Panasonic, and Full and Wider, who is uh, a builder. So they're actually uh, a developer that uh, sort of plans and then builds um, new districts, essentially. Sure, okay. And so, so they have a district over there that's called Pena Station Next. And Panasonic has put their headquarters for the U.S. there. And they were sort of the anchor tenant. And they're building out 400 total acres, and they want this to be a sort of smart community. It's mixed residential and commercial, and we've been working with all those folks in order to try to do an integrated sort of 
look at what you can accomplish on the building side. So what sort of demand response or energy efficiency uh, that you can put in to that network with how that impacts the distribution system design. Right. And so this is a really exciting project just because you have all the different stakeholders involved. It's a real physical thing that's going to get built out over the next few years. Um, and everybody that we've been working with has been uh, absolutely wonderful. And so Excel, you know, Excel's goal is to try to uh, allow customers to get the differentiated service that they would like so they can have more clean energy that's still reliable, that's still cost-effective. And when you say clean, do you mean environmentally clean or um, electrically clean? Um, so it's mostly PV that's being planned there. And okay. so I would I would say that's mostly both. It's both. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is more learning what the load needs and using that to build the supply. Right. And being able to understand those interactions that are going to happen between the local generation and the local demand allows you to... Um, build a system that can have that high reliability at lower costs because you're not overbuilding things. You're bringing the generation into the picture instead of just building to handle the worst case scenario. Now let's take that concept. I've got my new development out by the airport, which by the way, I totally want to live there. <laughs> this sounds awesome. Um, and now I'm going to bring up a second community and a third community, another 450 acres here, 1,000 acres over there, all different types of loads. Maybe this will be a lot of manufacturing. Ridiculous amount of inductive loads, very crazy demand. Um, this other one will be strictly residential. What does that mean? What are we looking at when we try to connect those three communities, electrically speaking? Yeah. Um, so those are probably, depending on how big the manufacturing uh, loads are, are on the distribution grid. And so that would actually be a pretty good thing because you have a lot of load diversity then, which means it's probably not time coincident that they each have their peaks at the same time, which is how you sort of design things within the power system, right? You have to design to the um, the highest load time. And so by having that co so non-coincidence of loads, you know, you can fit more energy there for a lower power rating on your transformers and substations and things like that. You know, what are the design considerations that go into being able to service a completely different region when you've designed it and tuned it so carefully for the loads that are on there? Yeah, that comes back to the flexibility that we've been talking about. Okay. And so the, the system traditionally hasn't been designed to allow you to island off and microgrid small pieces of the system. But it's a really interesting concept, right? Now that we have generation there that's localized, can we increase reliability and resilience by sort of doing that automatic islanding of that because we have loads and we have generation there? And can we have that run by itself for a while and then connect back to the rest of the system later when things get restored? And so that really speaks to um, a project that we're working on at NREL at the moment called uh, Autonomous Energy Systems. That the idea here is to sort of be able to do that automatic optimization and control uh, based on complex systems modeling so that and data analytics so that you can do that sort of shifting back and forth between who has control at the current point in time. And the hope there is that you get a more efficient system that's also much more resilient. 
how how far into this project are you? Is it pretty far along? Yeah, we, we've been working on this for about a year now. So this is an internally funded thing at the moment. Um, and so it's really where we see some of the power system uh, going over the next few years. And we're, uh, yeah, we've been working with some academic partners um, on sort of the, you know, the fundamental math that underlies this at the mm -hmm. moment. And we're starting to get to the point, I think, where we're, re you know, we're going to need to be reaching out and starting to engage now that we've developed a good sort of foundation with some of our utility partners that we work with quite a bit so that we can take it to the sort of next level where you're, you're thinking about all the practical considerations that go into it as well. Right, right. Um, and, and some of these you can't even design for. You find out as you're proving the model, proving the concept. Um, and so, but this has really been the autonomous energy. Like that to me is the whole crux of, of what's so super exciting about all this. And does this work that you're doing right now in autonomous energy systems inform the next five years? Um, does it show up in, in practical terms to the consumers? 20 years from now, five years? Yeah. So I think uh, at NREL, we really pride ourselves as a national lab as being sort of the bridge between academia and industry. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be able to understand the methods that are being developed in academia, but may not have an impact for 20, 30 years. But we also need to know, you know where the rubber hits the road right now from industry. And so this particular project, I think, is maybe a little bit further out on that timeline, mm -hmm. a little bit further toward that academic side. Uh, but we do lots of stuff as well that gets implemented tomorrow. Sure, sure. What, um, what can we expect to see in the next three to five years? Are there any major game-changing things that are just around the corner? Or are we still kind of working towards those longer-term solutions? I think we're um, because of the pace of distributed PV adoption of uh, storage technologies. I mean, the costs for storage have dropped so much okay. uh, recently. The costs of PV have dropped so quickly. Is that I'm sorry? Is that because of economies of scale or um, largely? Uh, there, there's obviously lots of other aspects uh, <laughs> involved with it, uh, but yeah. The, but mostly, I would say it's uh, economies of scale. They sort of hit a critical mass. Mm. And um, have been steadily decreasing to the point where, you know, in most places in the U.S., PV is cost competitive or cost positive compared to other types of generation. Really? Okay. And so, you know, because we've hit that from an economic standpoint, I think you can really expect to see these taking off even more. I mean, PV has been growing exponentially already. Um, and so it's really hitting that point where it's uh, taking off quite a bit more. And because of that, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more uh, communications and control technologies on that help you as a utility adjust to that new reality where you have all this generation out there that maybe you don't know exactly what's happening with it. And so um, one of the things that a lot of utilities are talking about right now is advanced distribution management systems. So this is an optimization sort of engine that helps them maintain the right voltages over the distribution network. So almost a precursor to the autonomous systems. Right. I, so I think the, the fascinating thing about this area is we built the power system under a certain set of assumptions. You know, you have these large generators, uh, power sort of flows downhill, those kind of things. If you were going to start from scratch and do 100% renewable generation, 
you would build a much different system. But we can't start from scratch, right? right. We have to we have to do this transition <laughs> sure. in an orderly fashion while still keeping great reliability and low cost. Sure. And so in this sort of in-between space, you have to sort of play on both sides. And that's what makes it really interesting to me. This has been an incredibly enlightening conversation. Thank you so much, Brian Mathias. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Cool. This program is produced by Aspen Core Studio for the Aspen Core Radio Service. Thanks for listening. Do you mountain bike? I don't. I, I don't. I'm not much of a biker. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how I got my Colorado driver's it, license. <laughs> <laughs>